All right. I want to start this morning by, of all things, taking us to the Torah, to the law of Moses. Look on the screen. Let me just share with you a few important passages. The first one you know very well. It's very familiar to us. You shall not commit adultery. That is number seven of the Big Ten, right? The Ten Commandments. Moving forward into the book of Leviticus, chapter 20, verse 10. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Serious stuff. And then moving forward again into Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 22. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring both of them out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death. So the law could not have been more clear about how much God values the sanctity of marriage and how he feels about the act of adultery, which destroys what he has designed, the one flesh nature of a marriage. And if you were living under the law as an Israelite, whether it was in Moses' day or in Jesus' day, both that command to maintain a pure marriage bed and the consequence for failing to do so, those were serious things. Those were things that every Israelite definitely should have taken into consideration when temptation came their way. Adultery and stoning to death, believe it or not, is the backdrop for our message today. So grab your Bibles. Let's open to John's Gospel. Look for John chapter 7, the very last verse, verse 53. So we're going we're gonna to read the very last verse of John 7 and then go 11 verses into chapter 8 this morning. Now, the passage we're going to cover is one of the most recognizable stories in all of the Gospels. The story of the adulterous woman who is brought by the Pharisees and scribes before Jesus for judgment. It's also one of the most beloved stories in all the Gospels because of the core message that it brings us. And that core message is that mercy triumphs over judgment. We love that, don't we? But before we dive into the story, I have some news to share with you that might be hard for some of you to hear. This passage, this story, probably doesn't belong in the original text of John's Gospel. Audible gasp across the room. Like, wait, what? Yeah, thank you. Jesse's, Jesse's playing along. Now, I'm not saying this story didn't happen. I'm saying it's probably not an original part of the New Testament canon. Not that the story is false. It may, may very well be true, but these verses, I believe, were added to John's gospel at a later date. Look at verse 53 there in chapter 7. Does it begin with a bracket or with some type of a, a note or footnote about ancient manuscripts. Raise your hand if you see that. Okay, good. Just so that you know I'm not crazy, it's right there in your Bibles, right? Okay, in every modern translation, you're gonna find something that informs you about the questionable nature of verses 753 through 811. So this requires me, I'm, I'm obligated by some unknown tradition or some law, to take just a few minutes to explain this, to explain how this happens and how we determine what we should do with this passage. As most of you know, we don't have in our possession any of the original writings of the New Testament, what we call the autographs. They've all been lost to time and environment and war and all kinds of things. So the New Testament that you are holding in your hands or you have on your phone 
is based on a collection and transmission of tens of thousands of ancient manuscripts, very old manuscripts, some as, as early as the second century, but the most important and key manuscripts from the early fourth and fifth centuries. In fact, I'm gonna give you a picture of what some of these look like. This is, this is called Codex Sinaiticus because it was found near the base of Mount Sinai uh, in the Arabian Peninsula. And that's the type of thing that we talk about ancient manuscripts. This is one of the oldest full New Testament manuscripts that we have, dates to the early fourth century. Now, we have tens of thousands of ancient manuscripts dating again from the second century up into the 15th century. Tens of thousands. And they are remarkably consistent and accurate in their readings. But as you can imagine, because we've all played the telephone game, when a set of documents is passed down and copied and then copied again for thousands of years, inevitably there are going to be mistakes because humans are involved. Remember, the original authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter chapter 1, right? But the copyists weren't necessarily, right? The scribes weren't carried along in that same way. So sometimes you're going to find that things get added or things get left out by a particular scribe or copyist, sometimes by accident, sometimes intentionally. And that is true even for a sacred set of documents like the New Testament, where we know that scribes and copyists went to great lengths to try to get it right. It's just gonna happen. So as we collate this massive volume of manuscripts and we begin to compare them and hold them up to each other, century to century, region to region, Greek, Coptic, Syriac, all kinds of different languages, experts in the field of what we call textual criticism are able to go through those and locate errors and omissions. They call them variants. And then they make scholarly judgments on those variants, whether they belong or they don't belong. And the goal, of course, is to find the most ancient and the most accurate manuscripts. By ancient, I mean closest, as close as possible to the actual biblical event. So ancient is better than recent. And they will look at external evidence. They'll, they'll ask questions like, in how many manuscripts does this variant occur? How early are those manuscripts? From what region do they come from? Or in other words, where were they found? And then they'll look internally, they'll study what a scribe might have done, try to, to pinpoint where in church history this particular variant got put into the texts, and then trace it. They call them family lines. They can usually find where a variant came about and then trace that through a family line of other manuscripts and then decide whether those things, based on the evidence, whether they deserve to be in or out. And so textual criticism is a hugely technical field of scholarship. It requires people not only to be able to read ancient languages, but to read very difficult ancient handwritten scripts. It's very difficult. And thankfully, we have men and women who have literally devo devoted their entire lives to trying to get the text correct. Now, here's the good news. 99% of the variants that they find are absolutely minor. They have minor significance. There are things like spelling mistakes. There are things like, like a word that is dropped or omitted here or there, or a line that is mixed up, one on top of another. So this is important for your peace of mind. There are no theological doctrines in jeopardy because of the variants that we find in the New Testament manuscripts. You're not gonna be able to say, oh no, there's this massive mistake about the grace of God. That doesn't exist. These are small things. By the way, Really quick commercial again for the underground. This is what we're doing right now in our bibliology. We're talking about these things. And in two weeks, I'm literally going to talk about the transmission of these manuscripts into the New Testament canon. So, so tune in. Done with commercial. 
Okay, so with all that background in textual criticism, now let's come back to this passage in John 8 and let's ask some, some really important questions. First of all, why is this passage in dispute? And second, why hasn't the issue been settled? Why, if, if it doesn't belong, why hasn't it been taken out? Why is it just footnoted? These are important questions. Let me just say that there are really good people, scholars on both sides of the debate as to whether it belongs here, but I am personally convinced that it doesn't belong here. That's my personal conviction. Now, before you shoot off a, a, a strongly worded letter to me or send me a text or an email and say, don't you understand you're on the opposite side of Dr. MacArthur <laughs> or an R.C. Sproul and A.W. Pink and others? I know. I know I am. That's okay, right? Say it's okay. That, that didn't seem real strong. <laughs> Say, I mean, we're on the campus of Masters, right? That's okay, though, right? Yeah, it's okay. okay, good. Now, what's interesting is in the division of people who, who look at this differently, it's the great preachers of the church that tend to be on the side that it belongs. And I get that because every preacher loves to preach a passage like this. It is so gospel-oriented that we absolutely love it. But the really nerdy exegetes out there, they're almost unanimous that this doesn't belong. And I'm talking about guys like Bruce Metzger. You know some of these names. Bruce Metzger and Leon Morris and D.A. Carson and Merrill Tenney. Uh, the real nerdy guys are believe that it doesn't belong here. And so I'm going to side with those guys on this one. So here are the facts. Here's why I think that this is true. This passage is not found in any of the earliest Greek, Syriac, or Coptic manuscripts that we have today. It's just not there. Among the Eastern Remember the, the church early on be, were broken up into the Eastern Greek speakers and the Western Latin speakers on the Roman side. In the Eastern Greek-speaking churches, this passage doesn't show up in any text until the 10th century. That's really late. And among the early church fathers who, who wrote commentaries on various parts of John, they don't talk about this passage. They, they seem to move directly from verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 52 into chapter 8, verse 12. They just seem to, to go right past it. In addition, most linguists agree that the style and the construction and the vocabulary of, of this section does not fit the writing style of John. There's a number of words used in this passage that John doesn't use anywhere else. And that's a major red flag when it comes to textual criticism. I'll give you an example. John uses the term scribes here in chapter 8. That's the only time in the entire gospel that that word is used. But Matthew uses it 24 times and Mark 23 times and Luke 14 times. So it's not common to John, but it is to the others. In fact, that has led some scholars to suggest that based on the writing style that this passage does belong in the New Testament, just not in John. That perhaps it belongs somewhere in Luke's gospel. It fits the style better. Now, are there arguments on the other side of the debate? Absolutely. Although this passage is unknown basically to the Greek-speaking side of the church, in the churches in the Latin West, on the Roman side, this passage is spoken of as if it belongs. So the best way to understand this is this story had a very ancient oral tradition attached to it. It's likely that the story had been circulating for centuries in the early church, and finally, some scribe said, you know what? This is common knowledge that this is a real story. It belongs somewhere in the New Testament canon. And he said, I'm going to put it in John <laughs> because John was the last of the four written. So it got put into John. And then other scribes then sort of went with that path and it went down a family line right up to your modern translation today. 
In other words, there was a consensus that it did belong, but nobody knew exactly where it should go, and then it got inserted at some point, and it stayed there up until today. Now, funny thing, Augustine, one of our favorite church fathers, in the early 5th century, suggested a conspiracy theory about this. Don't you? How many of you guys like conspiracy theories, right? Everybody does. This is like a, a whole new American fad, like conspiracy theories. Well, Augustine suggested that that this passage was originally in John's gospel and it got removed by the Greek-speaking bishops. There was a great rivalry in the church between East and West and that they took it out and they didn't want to speak of it because they believed it might lead some people to think that Jesus was soft on sin. Now, everything, everything you know, is connected to context and you have to understand at the day, in the day of Augustine when he was ministering, this was a time when pagans were coming into the church in large numbers and there was a great fear among the church that somehow sexual sin would be would be minimized and so the conspiracy goes that you know people are going to read this and think Jesus doesn't strongly condemn sexual sin Uh, it's a conspiracy theory right but it was common apparently in Augustine's day so bottom line many good scholars believe this passage does report an authentic historical event in the life of Jesus and therefore we can learn from it Is it true to the character of Jesus? Yes. Does it accurately reflect what we know about the Pharisees and the scribes? Yes. Is the story plausible based on what we know about the historical and cultural context of the day? Yes. So what to do with this passage? Should it be preached? There are guys that say, I won't preach this because I don't believe it's the inspired word of God. What do we do with it? Well, here's my position. Am I going to teach this as part of the historical flow of John's gospel? No, because I don't think it fits in the historical flow. But since it doesn't teach anything contradictory to Scripture, and it does teach principles that are theologically in line with other parts of the New Testament, I'm going to preach on it this morning. And my plan is to just sort of go through the details of the story, and then we'll pull out some applications, some things that we can learn from it that is consistent with other parts of the New Testament canon. Amen? That was a long defense (laughs) of of how I feel about that, but it's important. It's important to do. All right, so let's take a look at this. Let's begin in in that last verse, chapter 7, verse 53. It simply says, everyone went to his home. What a powerful verse. (laughs) Everybody went to bed. Okay, let's turn over to chapter 8 now. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, or at dawn, He came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. Verse three, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her or making her stand in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say okay so let's try to picture the scene this is you look at a story like this and it's it's sort of flat on the page and it's it's a it's a condensed you know uh, uh, narrative you've got to try to put some ancient sandals on and try to put yourself in this scene if you've been to israel you can picture the temple mount you can picture the temple courts right try to put yourself in the scene jesus is teaching this crowd this large group of people But notice, last chapter we talked about how several times he stood up and he was crying out. Remember we we looked at that word? He raised his voice and cried out. That's not happening here. Verse 2 says, he sat down 
to teach, which was the normal didactic uh, uh, posture of a teacher. So this is not crying out. He's in an educational posture. You get a, the sense that at this point the mood is calm and it's very instructional. But then there's this commotion. And you can sort of picture this, right? This, this loud commotion behind the crowd. Everybody turns to see this very impressive group of men in all of their religious and academic garb flowing behind them, and they're making their way, pushing their way through the crowd. And they're not just Pharisees. Everybody knows who the Pharisees are, but they brought scribes with them. Now, the scribes were the experts in the law that day. They were the seminary professors of their day. They were the so-called interpreters and guardians of the law. And it appears these men are coming with great urgency, and I'm sure the, the, it was calm at one moment, but now the tension is, is rising. You get a sense that a confrontation is about to happen. And then you look again, and there's another figure with them, and it's a woman. And she's being dragged into the center of the court by these men. She's being made to stand there, to be gawked at, surrounded by this crowd of people. My guess is she is in a state of distress. No doubt she is sobbing, and it's possible that she's, she's only partially clothed. This is a humiliating scene. Her guilt is being exposed right there before the religious leaders of Israel and, if you can imagine, right there in the center of the courts of God's house. I cannot imagine a more horrifying experience. And, of course, that's the point, right? The Pharisees and scribes are out for blood. They want to make this trial as public as possible. Their plan is to not just embarrass this woman, but to use her, use her to embarrass Jesus in front of the crowd. Not only is this humiliating for the woman, but imagine how incredibly frightening this would have been. These are, these are powerful men in Israel, and they are calling for her to be stoned to death right then and right there. So not only have you been exposed in terms of your sin in front of the crowd, but now you're literally facing death. Can you imagine can you imagine the emotion she's going through in this moment? These men, it should be pointed out, are sinning against this woman in the way that they're handling this situation. Is she guilty? It appears so. Does the law call, call for her death? Absolutely. But they're sinning in the way they're handling this situation. Clearly, they don't really care about her. If they cared about her, they would have held her in private custody until formal charges could be brought but she is a pawn in their game. She's a weapon for them to use and then to discard in their desire to get at Jesus. They certainly weren't there for righteousness or for God's glory, and so they confidently pressed Jesus to pronounce a verdict regarding this woman's guilt and and they do it in a very clever way. What they do is they pit Jesus against Moses in front of a Jewish crowd. Very smart, right? Very clever. They're arrogant enough to think that they can outwit Jesus by using their greatest strength, the scribe's mastery of the law. Remember, the comparisons with Moses, we've seen them over and over again in John's gospel. They've come up in Jesus' teaching. They've come up in the conflicts that he's had with the religious establishment, especially related to the Sabbath. So they know this is a touchy issue. What's their plan? Well, I can speculate only. The text doesn't tell me, but I think their plan is they expect that Jesus is going to have mercy on this woman. They view him as a libertine, not one of their own, as a libertine. So the plan is, by the way, they'd seen him forgive sins. They'd seen him heal a man on the Sabbath. They know that he leans, I mean, in, in our way of thinking, he leans towards the merciful side versus the true side. We know that Jesus is in perfect balance, but they would have seen him as way too merciful. And so they expect him to 
have mercy on this woman. So the plan is to bait him into publicly forgiving this woman so then they could accuse him of not upholding the law of Moses and being soft on sin. That, I think, is the plan. So verse six goes this, it says this. They were saying this, testing him or to trap him so that they might have grounds or evidence for accusing him. But Jesus stooped or bent down and with his finger, he wrote on the ground. Have you not loved this image before? Have you not thought about this before? What is he doing? Why would he do it this way? Now, there's an important historical and cultural note that you gotta insert here uh, related to the legal system in first century Israel. To catch somebody in the act of adultery was a very difficult thing to do. Almost impossible, because the standard for evidence was very, very high. Remember, this is a capital punishment case. This was no small potatoes here. Two witnesses had to actually see the sexual activity taking place. It wasn't enough to just find them in a compromising situation or to say, oh, look, two people came out of a room together. That's not enough. They had to actually witness the sexual activity. Here's why that matters. It's pretty obvious that this whole thing is a setup because to catch them in this act like that, they would have had to have planted spies ready to see this take place. And how do we know that? What's the evidence for that? What is missing from this scene? Have you thought about this? The man. It takes two to commit adultery, does it not? But the man is missing. And we just read from the law, both of them shall be put to death. It's very clear. Both of them should be brought to the gate and stoned to death. But the guy is not there. He's not brought before Jesus. Why? Probably because he's part of the conspiracy. He's a plant. I, now, you can't imagine that religious leaders would do that, right? To break their own law, to try to bring Jesus down? Oh, yeah. This is what powerful people do. This is what elites do when they want to hold on to power. There's a good chance that he's a plant, that he is part of the conspiracy, and therefore he is allowed to escape any repercussions. So there's a heavy accusation in the air. Moses commanded us to stone a woman like this, right, Jesus? So what do you say? How do you judge this, teacher? I mean, you can almost smell the smugness coming off of these guys, right? How do you judge this? And what does Jesus do? I love this. He ignores it. How many times have we seen this already? People demand something of Jesus, they accuse Jesus, and he just like, I don't have to respond to that. And he goes on his own path. Jesus ignores them. He responds to their challenge with silence. He just bends down and begins to draw in the dirt, which I find hilarious. Now, why does he do it? Well, you'll note as you go through this story, there are four references here to Jesus' change of posture. He bends down, he stands up. He bends down again, he stands up again. Four times in five verses, we see a change of posture. That tells us that it's intentional on his part and there's some important meanings behind it. So let me give you some of the best theories out there about why he did this. Why did he bend down? Number one, stooping or bending down would have taken some of the the heat out of the confrontation. It's a de-escalation technique because if I stand if you come to me and you accuse me and I stand up and lean into you the heat goes up if I if I take a step back and bend down you de-escalate the situation that's one possibility number two stooping is a posture where the Jesus could have used to identify with this woman in her humiliation to say I'm down here in the dirt with you see me I'm identifying with you here 
Number three, it's also possible that Jesus, again, remembering if she's partially clothed, part, only partially clothed, it's possible that by doing something sort of out of the box, something strange, and it would have been, people would have been, what is he doing? Everybody's eyes would have been drawn to him, and by doing that, he takes the spotlight off of her to protect her modesty. Now, we don't know for sure because the text doesn't tell us, but I think those are three pretty good theories. The bigger question that everybody asks is what? What was he writing? Uh, when you get to heaven, I mean, is that in your, that's like on my top 20 questions that I want answered in the first five minutes I'm in heaven, right? What, Jesus, what were you writing? What were you drawing, right? The answer is this, nobody knows. But we love to speculate. So here's some of the theories that are out there. You may have read them. Number one, some people say, well, he was writing the Pharisees' sin. He knows these men. He knows who they are. He's writing their, their sins in the dust. But I don't think there's enough dirt or time <laughs> for all of that. Uh, second one, he was writing the Ten Commandments down. Or at least the Seventh Commandment, right, or something. And, and that makes more sense because we know that how did God write the Ten Commandments with his his finger on a tablet of stone. So that would have connected with his, his deity for sure. John Calvin suggests that he wasn't writing anything in particular, just doodling and being silent. And to, to do that to shame these men, to basically say you're unworthy to be heard because of the way you're sinning right now. Personally, I've always thought that Jesus was just, he was just delaying in order to give these men time to reconsider what they were doing. Like if I sit down here and doodle for a while, maybe you'll stop and think about what you're doing right now. You're violating your own law. You're hypocrites. Maybe they'll repent during this time. But the bottom line is the text doesn't tell us, and frankly, it doesn't matter all that much. What does matter is how is Jesus going to handle this situation? What happens next? And it, what it does is it puts this very important theological issue on the table. How can God show grace to a known sinner, a convicted sinner, while at the same time upholding his justice? That, that is the gospel, right? How, how is that possible? Because we're all in this boat, right? We are known convicted sinners. So how does God balance those things? How can he show grace and uphold his justice? That's what's on the table in this story. So verse 7 says this, but when they, the Pharisees and scribes, persisted in asking him or questioning him, he straightened up. He stood up. And he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Wow. So if I'm right in, 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 in guessing that Jesus was just delaying so that they might reconsider, guess what? They don't. In fact, they... They double down, they persist, they intensify their efforts. I, I picture they begin to, to raise their voices and demand that he respond. Quit doodling and give us an answer, Jesus. See, here's the thing. They think they have him cornered here. I mean, they're like, they're licking their chops, they're rubbing their hands. They think they have him cornered and they want to get on with the show because they want to embarrass him publicly. And so Jesus stands up. Man, to be a fly on the wall in that moment, right? He stands up and he makes eye contact with him, right? This would have been, I mean, I get chills. I get chills thinking about it. And he says, what I, what I, I mean, to me, this is one of the most masterful responses. I would never think of this in that moment, right? We'd all be so frazzled by this whole thing. This is masterful. He says this in effect. You know what? You're absolutely right. She should be stoned right here, right now. And since we're all so concerned with keeping the law, let's make sure that we're all clean before the Lord. Witnesses, step up. Are you clean before the Lord? If so, throw the stone. 
You who brought this woman into the temple, step up. If you're free from sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. Who will stand before God in his house and throw that stone? That's the challenge he lays down. Now, take a few notes here. These are important things. Jesus doesn't deny that the woman is guilty. He's not soft on sin. He is the son of God, remember? He's the author of the law. He knows it pretty well. (laughs) I mean, we sometimes forget that, right? God the son, he wrote the law. So he knows exactly what it says. As an adulteress, she is condemned by the law. She does deserve to die. So he in no way seeks to set aside the law or diminish its role in this situation. That has to be said very, very clearly. Notice, too, that he doesn't plead for mercy on her behalf. I find that interesting. In fact, you could say that he approves of the execution. True? Go ahead, throw the stone. He approves of her execution. Now the question is, is anybody going to have the chutzpah to throw the stone? Verse 8. Again he stooped or bent down and continued writing on the ground. He went back to that posture. Think about it, guys. Before you pick up that stone to throw, think carefully. Hmm. When they heard it, they began to go out. It says they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, And he, Jesus, was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Jesus has completely disarmed these guys. We looked at last week how frustrated frustrated they were they couldn't get their hands on him and they have failed again. On the one hand, he did uphold the law. On the other hand, he saved the sinner from certain death. And in the process of that, I mean, that's that's good enough for me. Upheld the law, saved the sinner, But also, in the midst of that, he exposed the sin of those who had dragged her into the court in the first place. He he checked every single box in this particular story. They came to condemn and accuse Jesus. They ended up being accused, and they ended up being condemned a complete turn of events. None of us would have been able to pull this off. I mean, this is masterful. See, here's the thing. If the law is wielded unrighteously, it's like a boomerang. It'll come back and hit you in the face, won't it? It will. That's why we have to be really cautious in the way we point fingers, the way we, the way we judge people. Because if we do it hip- hypocritically, it's like that boomerang, shwack, right? It comes right back at us. So whether it's out of conviction of guilt or because they simply failed to trap Jesus and make him a lawbreaker, all of his adversaries slink away more frustrated than ever. And my guess is when the crowd saw this, first of all, the older men are walking away. Now the religious leaders are walking away and they're like, I'm not going to stone her. Why should I do this? And everybody disperses. Now, in that moment, imagine being this woman. Just take a, a, a deep breath and think about this woman. Imagine the roller coaster of emotions she has been on. The humiliation that she had gone through. The fear that she was feeling. Your life hanging by a thread. And now you're standing in the center of the temple courts with nobody but this rabbi who has just saved your life. Wow. What's next? Well, changes his posture one last time. Look at verse 10. Straightening up or standing up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And I... I can only imagine she must have very quietly said, no one, Lord. 
And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. Wow. So, notice Jesus doesn't ask her about her guilt. He knows. He knows. He's in the hearts of men and women throughout John's gospel, right? And this is no different. He knows what's going on. He knows she has committed adultery, but he also knows that she's been used. She's been used by these religious leaders. He knows the ugly situation from top to bottom. He knows everybody's sin in this whole story. It is sordid and it is ugly. And everybody here bears some measure of guilt and responsibility. But here's the thing. If there are no witnesses to condemn her, under the law, she cannot be punished. She's not innocent, but she's free to go. She's not innocent, but she's free to go. Now, why doesn't Jesus condemn her? That's the question. Is, is Jesus just a big softy? I mean, just because they wouldn't stone, they wouldn't stone her, does that mean he has to forgive her? Is he a big softy? Well, I think it's implied, first of all, that in his words to her, that this woman is broken and she's ashamed and she's repentant over this whole mess. And the Lord delights in forgiving a broken sinner. Amen? And second, by virtue of the cross, God has the authority to forgive any sin he chooses to forgive. I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy, God says. And so Jesus says, go. But not without this sharp exhortation, sin no more. We forget that, don't we? We always look at the, the, the mercy and the forgiveness, and that's great, but look at the exhortation, sin no more. In other words, he said to her, you have been given a great gift today. Do not throw this away. Do not forget this. Don't return to sexual sin. Not just because you, you fear being stoned to death, but because you have been rescued by the living God this day. Never forget. We need to hear that exhortation, don't we? We need to hear that as well. So let's summarize a few things. Look, this story is, is just so chock full of gospel principles. If, if I were to ask any of you, what's the application here? It's super obvious, isn't it? I hope so. But I think the best way for us to, to think about uh, applying this in our lives is to, is to ask and answer this simple question. In this story, who am I most like? In this story, who am I? Now, this is one of those things, don't give me that polished up external version. Look deep within your heart. Which of these characters do you fit the most? The Pharisees and the scribes? The people in the crowd? or the adulterous woman. Had you been a typical Israelite in that day and you were asked to rank those three categories of people in terms of godliness, everybody would have agreed. The most godly in, those group, in that group are the religious men. The second most are the looking fine on the outside ethnic Jews who are in the crowd. And third, at the way bottom, not even in the race, is the adulterous woman. Guess what? According to gospel principles, the truth is the opposite. It's the opposite. Jesus turns everything upside down, doesn't he? So this morning, can you at least in part identify with that first group, with the Pharisees and the scribes? So this is, this is just self-examination time. No, you know, don't have to shout anything out, but just in your own heart. Are you eager to point an accusing finger at the sins of others? Is that something you're prone to do while not doing any self-reflection about your own life? Is that your inclination? Do you wield the Bible as a weapon against people, especially people you don't like so much? 
Do you nitpick all the small things in others while missing the big obvious issues in your own life? Are you secretly jealous of the godly people around you? These are all things that were common with the Pharisees. Do you brush off sin and focus more on the optics of your life, how things appear on the outside to the people around you? Remember this important statement, soul-destroying often comes with a well-polished religious veneer. We need to guard against that. Secondly, can you at least in part identify with the folks in the crowd? When it comes to the issues of sin, maybe you just prefer to be a spectator standing on the outside. It's your goal to just, hey, I just, I just stay out of these things. I'm, I fly under the radar. But that's not an option we're given in Scripture. We can't ignore sin. We can't ignore it in our own lives, and we can't ignore it in the corporate life of the church. Complacency about sin is a serious thing. Complacency can be one of the most destructive things in the life of a church. It slowly chips away at unity and vitality in the body. We've got to be. We can't just stay on the sidelines. We've got to be concerned about holiness in our lives and holiness in the body of Christ. Don't be a spectator. And then finally, number three, can you identify with the adulterous woman? Exposed in your sin and all too aware that you are guilty before the Lord. By the way, I'm not recommending that anybody go out and commit adultery to find out. (laughs) That's not the point. It's this category of people that, that Jesus came to save. Not the spectators. Not the complacent ones. Not the Pharisees, the legalistic ones. This is the category of people that Jesus came to save. Those who have fallen short of God's standard and are broken over it. They know they're guilty before God. They know they deserve God's wrath. And so they cling to him and him alone for grace and forgiveness. He is the only way, truth, and life for a person like this who is broken, who knows they can do nothing to earn their way to heaven. This is who Jesus came to save. It's true, guys. We have all experienced the humility of being caught doing something we know we shouldn't have done. Just like her. Maybe not as severe as adultery, but we've all been caught. Whether that was a kid, as a teenager, as an adult, we've all been caught. We've all been exposed in some way. The question is, how do we respond to that, right? How do we respond? Do we respond in pride and defensiveness or with humility and repentance? We all suffer from it. How are we going to respond? Even if you've managed to keep your sin hidden from your fellow Christians or from the public's eye, you have to realize that every single sin that you've committed is open and laid bare before the Lord. We can only hide to to a very small extent impressing other people, but you cannot hide from God. He knows every sinful thought that you secretly entertain. He knows every swear word that you mutter under your breath. He knows all about that jealousy and that hatred in your heart that you have towards somebody else. He knows every deceptive word that you've used in order to cover your other lie. He knows the sins that we commit when we're alone, when nobody's watching. So what will it be? Point fingers at everybody else like the Pharisees? Brush it off and not deal with it like those in the crowd? Or as one who's been exposed... Will you honestly allow Christ into the pain and the ugliness of your sin, like this woman did, pursuing a consistent path of putting that sin to death, all the while trusting 
then it's by grace and grace alone that you're saved. Because those two things are not mutually exclusive. I'm putting to death my sin, and I'm trusting in God's grace. Both of those things have to happen. Both of them. I do not condemn you, Jesus said. I mean, could there be any sweeter words that any of us could ever hear? I do not condemn you. Remember, this woman has committed a heinous sin. It's one of the reasons what makes this story so powerful. This wasn't just, oh, I told a little lie last week. This is a heinous sin, and she's given a full pardon by the Lord. What grace. She deserves death, but she receives life. That's our story. It's our story. And I hope nobody's sitting here going, well, at least I haven't committed adultery. No. Do not minimize your sin. This is our story. You deserve death. You got life. By grace and grace alone. Go and sin no more, Jesus said. For those of us who are found in Christ, that is now our mandate, isn't it? You've been forgiven much, but go and sin no more. This should be true of all of us, that we are growing as we abide in Christ and mature in the faith. We are growing in holiness in our walk with Him. But here's the final question. Because everything, it's one thing to talk about what you should do. The bigger question is, what motivates you to do that? So what's the motivation for denying temptation and growing in holiness? Well, question, what do you think motivated that woman, that adulterous woman, whose life had been saved by Jesus that day? As she went off that day, what do you think motivated her to avoid temptation? Do you think she took a casual view of her sin after this? Or do you think this moment stuck with her the rest of her life? I guarantee you it stuck with her. I guarantee she changed her view of sin because she had met with the Lord. She had seen her life hanging in the balance and she was saved. That's our story. That's your story. We just sometimes forget that, right? We just sometimes forget it because we think our sin's not that bad. We really don't understand it. Our lives are hanging by a thread. We've been saved by grace. My guess is that full pardon she received that day became the motivation for her to begin a life of holiness. Did she do it perfectly? Absolutely not. But that was the continued motivation of her life to please the one who had given her life. And it's the same for us. It's why we sing about the kindness of God all the time, right? The kindness of God in saving us. The full pardon we've been, we've been, we've been given. The grace that he's lavished upon us, this is what motivates us to put sin to death in our lives in ever-increasing measure. It's always going to be sort of an up and down, but over time it should be a trajectory as we're putting sin to death in our lives. We'll never do it perfectly. We always have to rely on his grace. But this is the picture that we should come back to over and over again. He loved me so much that he would die in my place and take my sin upon himself. And since my debt cost him so much, I can no longer be apathetic about my sin. This is the motivation because it cost him. It cost him a lot. So I can't be apathetic. I can't allow myself to treat that grace as easy or cheap because I forever want to please the one who met me in that public square. Put yourself in her position, exposed And he met you in that public square when you were exposed, when you were deserving death. And he washed you clean and he set you free. What a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, there is now no condemnation for those who are found in him. Let's pray together. Lord, as we wrestle through whether this passage belongs in the canon, God, I am grateful for the story. I am grateful for the truths that come through it. Lord, you know the truth about about whether it belongs or not, but I know, God, you are working through this passage that it connects so well with other teachings. And so thank you, Lord Jesus, for these gospel principles. Thank you for allowing us the privilege of identifying ourselves in this situation, to be this adulterous woman, the place that none of us ever wants to be. But then we find ourselves broken over our sin and we find ourselves exposed and at the center of the court and we see you coming and saying to us, I do not condemn you. Lord, may that be the motivation that we have to continually grow in holiness, continually be the motivation for our worship of you, for all that you have done for us, for all your kindness in our lives. We praise you this morning. Amen.